Come on, Matthew. Get it together. We've been praying and grieving all day. Yesterday, they crucified our Lord. <laughs> we don't know what to do other than to pray and sing. He kept telling us that the Son of Man must come and suffer at the hands of wicked men and that he would be killed and on the third day he would raise again. I don't think we really believed him. And raised again on the third day. Jesus in his parables. We need him to interpret this one for us. What are we supposed to do? Where am I to go? I left everything to follow him and now he's not here. We're so confused. But I cannot go back to the way I was. Matthew, the tax collector. The Romans hired me to be a traitor to my own people and I, I was glad to do it. And they said, charge the people the tax and if you want to charge them more and keep it for yourself, that's your business. And so I made it my business. And I betrayed my own kinsmen and stole effectively and I had a good life for myself. A lonely life. And my family pushed me away and had no friends spit on in the community. But I deserved it, really. I was a path that I chose. I chose it and I couldn't turn back. No, I, I didn't want to turn back. Right. I hear the people on the streets. It reminds me of earlier this week when we came into Jerusalem for together. Jesus was riding on a donkey and the people were crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it was beautiful. But as the week went on, the tension rose and Jesus had standoffs in the temple and Pharisees and scribes and teachers were furious. <laughs> but Passover, it was special and different and good to be with him, but something was wrong. Looking back now, I, I see there was a heaviness, a thick darkness, an evil there over everything you could cut with a knife. And then Judas this. And after dinner, Jesus sent us. We went together up to the Mount of Olives and he asked us to pray with him. We could see he was burdened. But we fell asleep. We couldn't pray. And when we woke, we woke to the sound of an angry mob coming to arrest him. And we were a mess. We were afraid. Peter was violent. No real surprise there. Jesus, he was fearless. And filled with compassion even then. 
No surprise there either. But the rest of us, all of us, we were terrified and we ran and fled. When he needed us the most, he needed us the most. When he had shown us such mercy, I remember the first moment that he showed me mercy was I was in my tax collector booth and he came by and I, I knew of him this teacher this teacher of the law but more than that he was a holy man holy and a healer he healed people with all kinds of things leprosy and casting out demons and but he was holy and he was too holy for me but I was curious, and I saw him gathering with a group. <laughs> and then he turned to me. And it wasn't like some passing glance. It was a penetrating gaze. And it saw through to my soul, and he, he saw all of who I was. This tax collector, faithless man. He knew who I was. And I wanted to look away, but there was something in his eyes, a compassion there that I, could, I couldn't look away. I felt the safest place to be at that moment was looking in those eyes. And he turned to me and he simply said, follow me, follow me. I was in awe. <laughs> Just writing down my notes, I looked and saw him say that. Why are you telling me this? What have you had to do with me, holy man? I couldn't believe it, but I said, I'll follow everything about my life to this point, all the, the things that I'd worked for and lived for and become. It was worthless. How could I not say yes? And I, I left everything. I was so filled with joy that I got all my friends and I said, come, come, come to dinner with him. And he came, he was glad to come and all my friends, they, all we were was sinners and tax collectors, that's all who would spend time with me. And he was glad to be with us. <laughs> the Pharisees weren't happy. They said, why do you gather with tax collectors and sinners? And his answer to them was, a physician comes to take care of the sick, not those who are well. And I realized in that moment that <laughs> I was the sick one. And I had leprosy of my soul. And I had no way of healing myself didn't even care. And he came to me, called to me totally out of mercy. And as the scriptures say in the Psalms, he has forgiven all my iniquities and healed all my diseases. And again it says, my father and my mother may all forsake me, but the Lord will take me in. And he did. He took me in. 
he did. But he's gone. And I could not even stand with him for him. Lord, have mercy on me. I could not even stand. I couldn't, I didn't even have the courage to go and see what they were doing to him or see the crucifixion. They told me, afterward, they told me that they made a, a crown of thorns and they mashed it onto his head. <laughs> and he was bleeding. And they whipped him and beat him and teased him, mocked him and spit on him. He deserved none of it. And I deserved all of that. Oh God, have mercy on me. Have you wasted your mercy on me, God? I need to pray. I will rejoin the others and go to pray. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee there you will see him just as he told you and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid it was an emotional week, the week of the crucifixion. There were highs, lows. The city at times was exploding with praise and palm branches. There were confrontations in the temple, reunions, righteous anger as tables were turned over, celebrations and parties for Lazarus. But everything seemed to run together. The days were such a blur. Memories of betrayal, trials and denials, and Romans and Gentiles, swords and the Passover, hymns of praise, predictions of betrayal. But at the end of the week, at the end of the week, there was one overwhelming emotion, extreme sadness, a strange mix of disappointment 
confusion and unrealized expectations. But on that blessed day, that third day, there were two questions, no doubt, in the minds of everyone involved. The first question was a universal question, whether there were believers or unbelievers. And the second question was a question pointed at a particular group of people. The first question, how could it be? How could this be true? What happened to the body? The second, even me. You see, the women were just really following through. Sometimes, during emotional weeks, you just push through. You go to the next task. You do what you know is right, and you do what you're called to do. You don't really have time to really drink it all in. The days are such a blur. You're confused at what happened and when it happened and the chronological order of, of everything around you. But the women, they were bringing spices to a corpse that for two days had been in a warm climate. And as an act of piety, they were urgently honoring Jesus as soon as they could by treating his body with dignity and respect as one last offering of reverence. But there was no expectation of resurrection. No anticipation that Jesus would be any different from a deceased relative or anyone of the human race throughout all millennia. There was no anticipation that Jesus would be any different. The result was the same. He died. So they were just following through. Nicodemus and the, those that helped bury him, and Joseph, used all the powdered spices necessary, but they were coming to anoint liquid. Maybe it was just for closure. Maybe... It was just an excuse to follow through one more time with one more task just so that they could be close to him one last time. Can you identify with that? Life for us sometimes is just trying to do what's right. Finishing out what needs to be done. Changing just one more diaper or perhaps finishing up that project in the basement. It's just a pushing through, a last homework assignment before spring break. Not expecting anything different, totally unawares that God is moving behind the scenes, that His quiet sovereignty 
is working something marvelous. We're just pushing through. God is doing something unthinkable. Easter is a reminder to us of many things. But from the passage this morning, one of the things it reminds us of is this, that faith did not bring this event about. In fact, it was in the absence of faith, in the absence of all expectations, even for those who were deemed most faithful. But God, God remained faithful to his word and did that which no one expected. Sometimes even God's greatest followers are guilty of of this low expectation, this small faith that somehow God is working for their good. Moses was no different. And during those low times at the Red Sea is Pharaoh's army, the Egyptian army, the strongest army in the world, had pinned them against the Red Sea and they were trapped. God was still working. He created the pillar of fire to protect the Israelites who had no weaponry and had no skill in the art of warfare. He was working up a wind. And God said to Moses, Lift up your staff. I did not bring you here to be slaughtered. I did not bring you here to drown. I'm the deliverer. I have come to save. But even Moses, even Moses had to be reminded to expect the God of the universe to do great and marvelous things for his people. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through on dry ground. It was impossible. It was impossible. But that day, two million people crossed that sea and they saw the glory of God. And on this day, in our passage, the people were to see the same. They were to see the glory of God in the midst of the impossible. But it shouldn't have been something that they, that they didn't expect. Jesus had predicted his death and resurrection on many occasions. In fact, the very first time when Jesus asked his disciples and followers, who do they say that I am? And they recited perhaps Elijah, perhaps John the Baptist come back from the dead. And Jesus turned the question and he said, no, who do you say that I am? To which Simon Peter responded, you are the Christ. You're the living son of God. And from that moment, Jesus began to tell his disciples over and over again what would happen on this day. 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. There at the marvelous transfiguration, there on the mountain where Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured with all his glory, with his flesh shining through brilliantly. As they came down from the mountain, Scripture says, Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Or even that last week on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus said the same thing. Jesus going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. To which immediately after he shares that, Salome, James and John's mama, Immediately, instead of drinking that in, immediately ask Jesus, when you go into your glory, can my two sons sit on your right and your left? It was so typical. Jesus had made illusions that three days in Jonah's belly of the great fish, that the Son of Man was going to be three days in the earth. He, he said that knock this temple down in three days, he will build it back up again. He spoke it so clearly of what was going to happen that the disciples should have been expecting this. He spoke it so clearly that even the chief priests and the Pharisees remembered his teaching. And they came to Pilate and they asked Pilate to put a special guard at the tomb so the disciples couldn't come and steal the body and say that he was risen on the third day. That's why. That's why they were so shocked in verse 5. Upon coming to the tomb and discussing amongst themselves who's going to move this rock, who's going to move this stone, and, and seeing the stone removed from the grave and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. This Jesus. From this town, Nazareth, this one that was crucified, he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. The empty tomb is a glorious truth, a glorious fact that perhaps has more attestation than anything in all of ancient history. But it really meant nothing. It meant nothing if there was not some divine explanation, some rationale to why the tomb was empty. You see, the empty tomb doesn't create faith. 
It informs faith. He is risen. The Roman soldiers who were guarding the tomb saw the angels and one gospel counts as they fell down as dead men. They were so afraid. These bravest of, of fellows, these individuals who had faced life and death, no doubt numerous times upon seeing that those glorious angels, there was no faith accompanying the, their vision. The Pharisees, the leaders, they hear the body is gone and they're furious. They've heard reports of angels and considered it nonsense. So they bribed the soldiers to say that the disciples came and stole the body. No faith. All of Jesus' ministry was right there before the religious leaders' eyes. They saw lepers be healed right before them. Blind men receive their sight. Lame begin to walk. The demon-possessed have demons cast out of them. Paralytics on a mat raised unto their feet. They even reported back to themselves. There's no one who teaches like this. There's no one who performs such miraculous signs. And still, no, 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 no. They even sent representatives to go see Lazarus, who lived over in Bethany, just a few miles from Jerusalem, to investigate this incredible story that they heard with many witnesses of Lazarus being four days in the tomb then being raised back to life. They still would not believe. In fact, with Lazarus, they plot to kill him because people were following Jesus because of this marvelous miracle. There is no faith. Miraculous signs do not create faith. The empty tomb doesn't either. But it informs faith. Evidence. If there's only enough evidence, my relative, my brother, my father... My friend, they would believe in Jesus. If they could just see some miracle, if they could just experience some of the things maybe I've experienced, they too would believe. And yet, and yet Scripture says the exact opposite. Even the leaders, the religious leaders that were waiting for this Messiah to come, when after Jesus was resurrected and Peter and John performed this marvelous miracle on this lame man that everyone had passed by for decades as he was begging because he, he could not walk. And now he stood before them and, and told the story how, how they just in the name of Jesus had healed them. And this was the response of the leaders. They said, what are we going to do with these men, Peter and John? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they've done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. Let's just tell them never to speak of this name again. Evidence. You know, Julius Caesar compiled his history of the Gaelic Wars between 144 B.C., 
However, we only know of this particular event through 251 copies that date or partial portions of copies that date 900 years after he lived. And yet the New Testament, the story that we just read, has over 6,000 ancient Greek New Testament copies or portions of, of, of manuscripts and another 18,500 manuscripts of the New Testament translated in other languages. 24,500 manuscript copies of the New Testament and all of them are essentially the same. And the time gap from the original manuscript to the earliest extant copies is only about 50 to 100 years. There is no document in all of history that has more evidence to support what was originally written than the New Testament. John Warwick Montgomery says this, to be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity. For no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. Evidence? Besides the fact that the grave was under seal of the Roman guard, Besides the enemies did everything they could to squash the truth. Besides the fact that the stone was rolled away. Besides the fact that no body was ever recovered. Besides the fact that scripture predicted that Jesus would be crucified a number of hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever even invented. Besides the fact that scripture predicted how many pieces of silver Jesus would be betrayed for hundreds of years previous. That he would be buried with a rich man in his grave, crucified between criminals, denied three times by one of his closest friends. In fact, after his resurrection, 500 witnesses saw Christ at one particular viewing. Eyewitness accounts. The best testimony available. Even the eyewitness account from the Apostle John of blood and water coming out as the spear wound pierced Christ's side and there medically attested to as the accurate cause of death. That's exactly what would happen with death by asphyxiation. There's a mountain of facts. But perhaps the greatest fact is changed lives. Lives that have changed the very one mentioned here in this passage, this one named Peter was scared and he ran and he hid and he was afraid. He was not willing to stand up to even a servant girl. And even on that Sunday, he was still hiding. I understand if you're skeptical. But I don't understand this if you ask the question, how can it be? And this is why. If Jesus is the creator of the universe, if he made man out of dust, carbon, and put together a body, and the Father breathed life-giving spirit into this man named Adam's nostrils, and he became an animated living being with a soul, 
If that's true, then it would not be very hard to raise a corpse from the dead. If you really want a hard question this morning, it's this. How can an infinite, eternal, holy God incarnate His being into the human flesh of the man we call Jesus? The incarnation of Christ is a greater miracle than the resurrection. In fact, it brings to light this question. Why? Why would a holy, perfect, righteous God come down to earth and voluntarily take the place of sinful humans who have rebelled against his law, mocked him, scorned his revelation in the Bible, even though it's more factually viable than any other document in all the world, and that's unarguable whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, just through textual criticism, the science of textual criticism, Why would he allow himself to be crucified, dead, and buried? Why? That's the harder question. But if you knew him this morning, you would know the answer. You would know why. Because you know what he's like. Second question. Even me. You know, one of the characters mentioned in these eight verses is Mary Magdalene. And she was one who was said to be unclean. She was possessed by evil spirits. There's no way she could belong to society she couldn't go to temple. Some say that she was perhaps a prostitute, but we're not sure of that. Scripture doesn't say that. But we are sure of this, that someone who was possessed by demons in the Jewish culture and faith would have been more despicable than Matthew the tax collector or any other. She was possessed. She was the epitome of what would be considered a bad kid. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand what it must have been like to be someone like Mary. But maybe this would help. Imagine you're in line and it's April 2020 and you hear someone behind you sneezing, coughing, and they start talking to their friend as they continue to sneeze and cough. And they say, man, I just got this terrible headache. I don't understand it. I got this scratchy throat, this fever that just seems sky high. I got all these muscle aches all over me. <laughs> Would you invite them over to your house? <laughs> Would you give them a ride in your car? Would you allow your children to hang out with them for just a bit? Even if that was your brother who was behind you? You wouldn't. Why not? Because there would be a sense of danger. 
there would be a sense of uncleanness, at least till it passed. Now is Mary's life every single day. She was despised by the world. But she was a vital part of the ministry of Christ. Soon afterward, Luke writes, he went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God and the 12 were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their own means. These were the people that Jesus was willing to associate with. These were people who needed help. People like Matthew who sold their soul because of greed and a longing for a little bit of comfort and security. People who desperately needed a doctor whose hearts were filled with the cancer of sin. Even people who were possessed with evil spirits. They were trapped. Have you ever seen anyone who was possessed? I remember being in Ghana there at a medical clinic, and I don't have any medical background. My job was just to wait till everyone did all the hard work, and at the end, I would just kind of pray with people. And there came a woman there who happened to be a daughter of a high priestess in a particular voodoo-like cult there in Ghana. And when her mother died, she said that night something terrible happened, and she became possessed by this spirit. And I remember saying, well, would you like us to pray for you? And she had this reputation in the community because many went to her. And she said, no, I don't want to have you pray for me, especially publicly because people will see that. And so she was willing to go privately with uh, a number of us. And we sat her down and we began to pray for her. This woman was trapped. She wanted out. She didn't ask for this possession. She hated who she was. Yet her behavior was many times taken over by something that was outside of herself. And when she was free, the spirit came out with an awful scream, an otherworldly scream, and a peace set in her heart. And she sat with a pastor there heading to church that very night. This is what it was like to be Mary. No one would invite her in. No one would have any kind of relationship with her. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. She faithfully stuck by this one. At the cross, she was there with his mother. At the grave, we read, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint them. One writer said this of Mary, this bad girl. Not she with traitorous kiss her master stung. Not she denied him with unfaithful tongue. She, when the apostles fled, 
could dangers brave last at his cross and earliest at his grave? Why am I bringing up Mary? This is why. Because we know from other accounts that Mary, this unclean one, was the very first human to see the resurrected Christ. She was bestowed with the honor, this bad girl, if you will, with the honor of seeing the resurrected Christ. Unlike Mary, there's another person mentioned in this passage who might have been asking the same question Mary did. Even me? Even me? You would allow me this honor on this glorious resurrection day? This person probably lived a really clean life. He was probably very moral, although people oftentimes don't give him credit. He was upstanding and even said that he had never in his life broken any of the dietary laws. He was a good kid. Sure, sometimes he said things that he shouldn't. And sure, sometimes he flubbed things up. But he, Peter, was chosen as the leader And Jesus said, and you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And yet this good kid, this one who followed Jesus and abandoned everything he had was even willing to leave his wife at home and go on ministry with with Christ and then probably back and forth, maybe see her at, at different times, at different stops. He had given everything up to follow this Christ. And yet, as the leader, as he tried to lead, he kept messing up. And it seems like every time he messes up, it's recorded in Scripture for us so that we can remember He needs Jesus just as much as Mary needed Jesus. Bad kid, good kid, it doesn't matter. Everyone's a sinner in need of a Savior. So much so when he tried to lead, Jesus told him to get behind me, Satan. Or when he walked on water like none other, when he began to sink, Jesus said, why did you doubt? Or in the last night of Christ's life on, on earth, Peter defends him with a sword and Jesus said, put away your sword. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Rebuke after rebuke after rebuke. Even later in life, Paul will rebuke him in front of others because Peter was fearful of the opinions of the religious folks. But the worst, the worst happened just a few days before. On the very eve, the very night that Jesus would be taken into custody. Jesus said to them, you all will fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter, being the leader, answered him, 
Though they all fall away because of you, Lord, I, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And yet, that very night, Peter denied knowing the Christ when challenged there as he followed Jesus from a distance, got into that courtyard and was accused of being one of Jesus' followers. Peter denied it. Then he called down curses upon himself to try to strengthen his case. But on that last denial, as Jesus was coming down from the high priest's residence and walking from them, their eyes met immediately after he denied him for the third time. The last sight of Jesus alive for Peter was doing the very thing he said he would never do. And shame must have engulfed his soul. So imagine, imagine on that Sunday morn the report to the disciples. He's alive. He's alive. He's risen. We saw an angel. The angel told us he's risen. Imagine if you were Peter. And Peter... The angel had a special message. The angel told us to go tell his disciples and Peter that he is risen. Peter must have been asking himself the same question, Mary. And the others have asked, not just how is this possible, but even me, even me, Paul tells us sometime during that day that Jesus personally appears to Peter, but it's a private meeting. No one knows what was said, save Peter and his forgiving, compassionate, unconditionally loving Lord. But you see, that's who God is. That's who God is. He's not just this miracle-working entity that can create the world or breathe life into a body. Not just one who can heal the lepers and raise the dead. He is one who personally, even in the midst of Easter morning, is ministering to people like Matthew, people like Mary, 
and Peter. Why would a holy, perfect, righteous God come down to earth and voluntarily take the place of sinful humans who have rebelled against his law, mocked him, scorned his revelation in the Bible, and allow himself to be crucified, dead, and buried. Why? If you knew him, you would know why. Because you would know what he's like. It's who he is. That's who the God of the Bible is. He's not some God that demands this perfect life to be lived. Yet he is. But he's this God who never lowers the standard and instead sends his son to do the very thing that you and I have failed to do. Good kid. Bad kid. And then he voluntarily climbs up on a cross and allows metal spikes to go through his wrist and his feet. There hanging in all of its shame. Scorns the cross. Scorns the shame. Dead and buried into a tomb. And on the third day, he rises again. He rises again in all his glory. And he makes a way for you and me to be able to have everlasting life. If he didn't rise, then you will not rise either. If he didn't rise again from the dead, you have no hope post this life. But he did. But he not only did that, he had a special message for a disciple who had failed, who had boasted that even if all others would fall away, I will never fall away. And on that Sunday, message to Peter must have caused Peter to ask the question even me even me listen what's the point here's the point if you miss the personal aspect of Easter you've completely missed it Easter is not just a historical fact about some religion being established. It's God's personal touch. And you fill in the blank. Go tell his disciples he is risen. And fill in your name. That's who God is. He's a personal God. A God of relationship. That even in the midst of His glory, part of His glory is not only to display to the world His power, but to offer the world Himself. Go tell His disciples 
and Peter. And this is the response as the worship team comes forward. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Do you know him this morning? We're going to conclude and we're going to invite the prayer team to come down. Several times Bruce made the statement in the sermon, if you knew him, you would understand why he did the things that he did. So the question we want to leave you with this morning is, do you know this resurrected Jesus, Lord and King? If you do, then this is what we just sang is your promise. What a foretaste of deliverance. We're going to be resurrected with him when he returns. If you don't know him, that's not going to be your testimony. And so we want to today conclude by giving you an opportunity to respond. So I'm going to pray for us and close us out and dismiss. And we'll have some from the prayer team down front here. And if you do not know this Jesus, this resurrected Savior, I would invite you to come and to talk. We'd be happy to talk with you and to pray for you this morning. So let's pray and then we'll dismiss. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have in you, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that it wasn't just some fact that happened in history. But Lord, it was personal. Lord, you died to rescue me. Each person in this room has put their faith, who has put their faith and trust in you. Lord, you died to rescue them and you rose again proving that the work of the cross accomplished exactly what you said it would. Wrath has been put away, the penalty of death forever gone for those who know you. And so, Lord, we pray that as we go from this place, we would be ones who would take this same message, the good news of the gospel, the resurrected Savior to those that we know. Lord, we pray for those that are here this morning that do not know you. Oh, Lord, work in their heart. Grant faith and repentance even now, we pray, that they too can sing this song, Lord, with hope in you. And so, Lord, bless this day, the remainder of our time together, we pray, as we go to our families and celebrating lunches together, whatever people have planned going on. Lord, may we just be thinking about you throughout the rest of this day, worshiping you, our resurrected Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed. I'm going to invite the prayer team down. If you would like prayer, please come down front and talk to them.